Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, from London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. America's big firms are girding for earnings season when they report quarterly profits. Some tough news is expected. We look into why any disappointing numbers might be reflecting far more than just the bottom of the standard business cycle. And many parents will be aware of baby brain, the idea that parenthood has noticeable cognitive effects. It's a real thing. Parts of mother's brains do in fact shrink. Now, some new research shows that dad's brains get smaller too. But first... central Beijing today, serious pomp and ritual. All of the grandees of the Chinese Communist Party are gathered for their five-yearly conference. It's the tiniest window into the black box of Chinese politics, what the party is thinking. On the conference's first day yesterday, President Xi Jinping's two-hour work report speech showed how he wants to portray his record in office and defend his policies. But the real drama, if there's any at all, will be later in the week, as Mr. Xi heads toward an expected but norm-busting third term in office. So on Sunday, we had the grand opening of the National Party Congress. These are very important political meetings that happen every five years, and they are party events. David Rennie is our Beijing bureau chief. It's very important to realize this is not a national government having a kind of policy discussion. This is party theater in the grandest form. So what was it like there on the ground to to observe the theater? Only a very small number of Western journalists were allowed to go. We had to quarantine for 48 hours before we went to the Great Hall of the People as our motorcade drove through a basically empty Beijing in the early morning on Sunday to the Great Hall of the People. There are police on every single flyover and footbridge over the ring roads of Beijing. We got to the Great Hall of the People, which is this enormous Stalinist Chinese palace with pillars on the front on the side of Tiananmen Square. There are 2,300 delegates who are supposedly there to represent ordinary party members. And so they make a big show of having people like sort of astronauts and Olympic athletes and policemen in uniform. And then journalists going into this enormous great hall with red carpets, marble pillars, enormous chandeliers. And then the main auditorium where Xi Jinping gave his work report, which has a giant gold hammer and sickle surrounded by red banners and flags. You have a military band playing the national anthem, a very large number of hand-picked, very senior officials, the Central Committee, and also former members of the Politburo Standing Committee in a long line on the main stage. And what's the purpose of this work report? Is this kind of his pitch to be elected leader again? 
So in the context of this party congress, where we know that it's overwhelmingly certain that he's going to get a third term as party leader, he's basically making a defense of his first decade in power. And it was a very unapologetic speech. It really didn't speak to the anxieties in the country at large, the slowing economy, the fact that many Chinese people are worried about the apartment that they own losing its value, high unemployment levels among the young. Because it's important to realize this is a work report by the party leader justifying everything he's done and then unspoken that he's going to ask for another five years. It isn't for the 1.4 billion Chinese people outside the hall, even not really for the 2,300 delegates in the hall. This is theatre to cover the fact that some very important decisions were taken quite a long time ago inside the black box of elite Chinese politics. And so this is not a State of the Union address where a president will feel the country's pain because he wants their votes the next election. It's not a kind of Queen's speech in the British sense where the legislative programme is laid out in great detail. This is party theatre, and it is an ideological project setting the highest level lines of party endeavour, framing the last 10 years, why everything was correct. This was Xi Jinping saying that there is a major storm underway, and he is, as state media now calls him, the helmsman. He is guiding the ship of state through this storm. But still, even if this is theatre and this is aimed at the elites, there must be a few things we can glean from a two-hour speech. In terms of kind of gleaning some sort of policy signals from it. This was a very security-focused speech, all about risks and challenges. So on Taiwan, using language we've heard before, but it's still fairly chilling, he said he would not promise to rule out the use of force to take Taiwan back. The loudest applause and the longest applause of the, of the entire work report was when he said that the reunification of China, so taking back Taiwan, uh, can and must be realized. Uh, on Hong Kong, a complete rejection of foreign criticisms. He said that by clamping down in Hong Kong, Beijing had turned chaos to order. Where he hinted at problems, in the party, saying he'd removed serious hidden dangers. That was really about saying that until he had come along, the party had not been strict enough, had not been powerful enough, and had not been Marxist enough. If there were private entrepreneurs and foreign investors looking for a change of course or an acknowledgement that the private sector is actually really important, they were probably disappointed. It was a very kind of party and state heavy speech, a lot of talk about party controlling technology, and above all, no change on things like zero COVID, at least nothing signaled in this work report. So it's hard to get a read on this, David. If everything has been hashed out before, if all of this is is theater, is that to say that that everything he's said is expected, that, that everybody in the party agrees with it? The thing that's really important to know is that the Chinese elite, whether that's the business elite or government ministries or technocrats, they're actually quite divided by Xi Jinping's rule because he is massively strengthening the control that the party has over universities, over government work, over private businesses, over really every aspect of life. And there are plenty of people in the Chinese elites, from private entrepreneurs to kind of university professors or even people in the government, who think that this is actually damaging China, that it is closing China off from the world, that it's picking fights, for example, with America that are really unwise for China at this stage in its development. And so for Xi Jinping to be basically signaling no course correction and really no engagement with the anxieties generated 
by his extremely kind of aggressive policies to date. That itself is a policy signal. The absence of change, that kind of doubling down, is basically rejecting all of the voices of disquiet and concern that people like me here in Beijing hear every day from members of the Chinese elite. So you're describing a situation in which everything is preordained, everything is by definition approved. Is that to say that there are no surprises, that all of this is just going to spool out and we aren't going to learn anything else this week? No, there's a final act to this drama, which is that we will find out exactly how much power Xi Jinping has managed to amass in the last few years, because a new central committee will be chosen, and then they will, in theory, elect a new standing committee, which is the most powerful seven or so people who run China. When they walk out on stage on the coming Sunday, we will look at that lineup. And if there's someone who is neither too old nor too young to succeed him and is close enough behind him in seniority, that might well be his successor. And that's how we found out Xi Jinping was going to become the big boss 15 years ago. And so it's a very kind of ritual system, but there are real messages. The final part that we're waiting for is that this Congress will approve amendments to the party constitution. Again, this sounds extraordinarily theological. It will do with things like how Xi Jinping thought is framed in the constitution. But it's a bit like a religion, right? And words can matter in very closed, very ritualistic systems. And this is arcane stuff, but behind it is real fights about power and control. David, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. If you haven't listened to The Prince yet, let me tell you one more time, it's amazing. It's an eight-part deep-dive series looking at who Xi Jinping is, how he amassed all that power, and what motivates him, what worries him. If you have listened to the series, good news. Later today, a bonus episode will come out answering listeners' questions. In either case, look for The Prince wherever fine podcasts are sold and traded. Why do half a million of us put on the FedEx badge every morning? The logistics and delivery giant FedEx has long been seen as a bellwether for the wider economy. FedEx's flux of finished goods is a pretty good proxy for levels of economic activity. There was a time that Federal Express, as it was when it was new, looked destined to fail. Global oil shock put their costs up even as demand was going down. Now, almost 50 years later, that's happening again. You know, our priority now is stabilizing market. Now, we could be accused of wanting to... Uh, influence market in a negative way, that's everybody's prerogative. We and others will see how we conduct ourselves in the months to come. Earlier this month, OPEC said it would cut production by 2 million barrels a day. That just adds to FedEx's worries. Last month, the company cited flagging demand and high costs and dramatically withdrew its predictions for annual income. Its stock price dropped by a fifth, and about $11 billion came off its value. If FedEx remains the bellwether it's been for decades, well, buckle up. U.S. earnings season is just around the corner, and a number of big companies have started to release early reports. Tom Bennett writes about business for The Economist. So on October the 6th, the British oil giant Shell said it expects margins in its refining and chemical businesses to plummet. Only the day after that, South Korean electronics giant Samsung cautioned that its operating profits would decline for the first time in three years. 
and American business icons have made similar noises. Ford blamed its expected profit squeeze on shortages of car parts, and Nike is really struggling to clear its inventory of unsold sportswear. And forecasts for the profits of American companies in this quarter have come down by about 7% during the last few months, which is double what we generally expect. Profit forecasts are bound to fall for 2023. But there's also a lot of talk about a broader economic slowdown going on. All of this could be seen as just fitting into the normal cycle of things. Exactly. Businesses are cyclical and corporate America is coming off a huge boom in profits after the pandemic. However, you can also see this in terms of a 10-year cycle or even a 40-year cycle. Lots of those forces that have really been propelling profits this year, profits were the highest percentage of GDP since at least the 1940s. A lot of those forces seem to be slowing or going into reverse. Take globalization, which allows firms to cut costs and become more efficient and gives them access to new markets. Earlier this month, the World Trade Organization, the WTO, forecast global trade will only grow by 1% next year. But the picture for 2023 has darkened considerably. Policymakers face unenviable choices as they attempt to find an optimal balance among fighting inflation, maintaining employment, and advancing important policy goals, such as the transition to cleaner energy. Also, consolidation and profits have risen hand in hand. It's more difficult today to do mega deals than it was just a few years ago, as governments are warned off the power of monopolies. So is that enough to explain it then, that globalization has done all it's going to do now that everyone's globalized, that consolidation has done all it's going to do now that that's all that governments will allow? Well, there are some very tangible headwinds that companies are going to face during the next few years. One of them is that rock-bottom interest rates have come to an end. The other is that the appetite for deficit-funded tax cuts has been reduced. And the third is that workers are demanding more of the spoils. So how does the the end of cheap money figure into this then? Uh, So a study released by the Federal Reserve a few weeks ago said that low interest rates and low corporate taxes account for about a third of profit growth among the S&P 500 firms. Well, interest rates are rising, and that affects risky firms first, so firms with floating rate debt, which adjusts as the interest rate increases. Fortunately for the big American firms, only about 10% of their debt, that is, firms in the S&P 500 index, is floating rate. But there will come a time when they need to raise more debt or refinance that debt, whether that's next year or the year after, they're sure to be paying more for it at a higher rate of interest. And the next topic, the, the, the tax man cometh. Well, falling corporate tax rates has been another tailwind to companies, especially in America. For example, the Trump's Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which was signed into law in 2017, slashed the statutory corporate tax rate from 35% to 21%. Now it seems the wind is changing. The Inflation Reduction Act, passed recently under President Biden, introduces a 15% minimum corporate tax rate on profits of firms with more than a billion in pre-tax income. They have to pay, they'll have to pay a minimum tax of 15%, just 15%. The days of billion-dollar companies paying zero in taxes is over, I promise you. Public finances are increasingly tight, which means that further deficit-funded tax cuts seem unlikely. 
And lastly, you said uh, another factor here is workers are going to want more from their employers. I must say I sympathize. Absolutely. One of the big problems for firms is labor costs. So labor costs amount to around 40% of total costs for S&P 500 firms. Once you raise wages, you generally can't cut them again. So all the wage rises we've seen during a very hot job market during the last 12 to 24 months, they're likely to be sticky. Union membership in the US spent the second half of the 20th century in decline. Now, a Gallup poll suggests that unions are the most favorable they've been in the US among the population since 1965. Even younger workers are starting to unionize. Take Starbucks, for example. As we know, American bosses are not particularly squeamish about firing people. This is likely to get more difficult. What you're describing here is is a scene in which companies won't be making fat profits for, well, possibly ever again. Well, if American business has proved one thing, it's that it's remarkably resilient. It's always got another rabbit to pull out the hat. There are clearly significant headwinds facing American bosses it's going to make for quite a messy earnings season in the next few weeks. Whether this is the end of a short-term profits boom or the closing of a longer chapter in American business, we don't yet know. But over the long term, I wouldn't be confident betting against American business. Tom, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Having a baby changes a person's life, their routine, their friends, their priorities. What's less immediately noticeable about parenthood is that it has impacts on brains, too. And not, as you might expect, just the mothers. Scientists have found that dads' brains change in ways that previously they thought only mothers' brains did. Ainsley Johnston is a data journalist for The Economist. So researchers led by Magdalena Martinez-Garcia at the Health Research Institute in Madrid took MRI scans of soon-to-be fathers based in Spain and in California, both before and after their children were born. And they compared them with brain scans of men who did not have children. And what they found was that the brains of the new dads had changed. So changed brains. Let's dig into this a little bit. What is it they were looking at looking for? The researchers were looking at a couple of different things. One was the volume and thickness of the cerebral cortex. So that is the thin layer on the outside of your brain. And it's responsible for all sorts of things like sensory perception and language and cognition. And then they also looked at the size of subcortical regions. So those are kind of deeper structures that are responsible for things like memory formation and regulating fear. And so what exactly did they find then looking in those regions? So they found that parts of the cortex had shrunk in the men who had recently become fathers. To try and isolate where these changes were, 
the authors divided up the brain based on its function. And they found that an area at the back of the brain, known as the visual cortex, which is responsible for processing information about vision, had shrunk in the new dads. And they also found that a network of other areas, which are known as the default mode network, which are responsible for things like mind wandering and thinking about yourself and thinking about others, were also smaller in the new dads after they had become fathers. So hang on, we are talking about dads' brains actually getting smaller here. Do we have a guess as to why, what advantage that might confer? Well, the scientists still aren't sure. There is a chance that the brain could be adapting to the new changes and challenges that are associated with being a parent. In one earlier analysis, using just the Spanish dads, a group of researchers found that if they did an MRI scan to measure the brain function in men while they were looking at pictures of their own infant versus pictures of another, they found that the new dads who had the biggest shrinkage in brain size also had the most responsive brains in response to seeing pictures of their own infants. So whatever the mechanism here, we're assuming it is something that makes for more attentive dads. The authors didn't really look at whether it was associated with being a better parent. But we know that something similar happens in women's brains. There was a study published in 2017 by some of the same researchers, and they found that shrinkages in the default mode network of new mothers, which is the area associated with things like daydreaming and thinking about yourself, that was associated with how the mothers felt towards their babies. So things like how bonded they felt and whether there was an absence of any hostility towards their new infant. So is what's going on here that moms and dads' brains change in the same way and, and presumably with the same effects? So the changes are more dramatic and profound in mothers than they were in fathers. Although a lot of the same areas changed in size, in mothers, the changes in size tended to be more dramatic and also more consistent. And in some ways, that sort of makes sense. Women's bodies undergo huge changes during pregnancy and after childbirth, huge changes in hormones, as well as having changes in experience as they're interacting with their newborn. What is unusual in humans is that both mothers and fathers tend to look after their offspring. And it seems from this study, like in both sexes, these changes associated with caring for your child are being wired into your brain. Ainsley, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. Drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. 
Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.